they can't hear me on the live stream. We'll figure that out. All right. Sorry. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get on that. So in the mid-90s, I was invited to a youth group event in the backyard of a family at Grace Fellowship Church. Um, I have no recollection of what we did at this event. I don't remember the music. I don't remember the activities. And I certainly don't remember any sort of message. The only thing that I remember was that at some point they, they brought out this projector because they wanted everybody to watch the cartoon, a cartoon of a cucumber um, singing about a water buffalo. I, I don't know what a water buffalo is, and I didn't want to find out. But, but what I'm describing is my introduction to what's called VeggieTales. For, for those of you that are unacquainted, VeggieTales was a widely popular children's cartoon series that was aimed at Christian youngsters. They told Bible stories using vegetables. It, it was very clever, very funny. Uh, it was also extremely well-written. And for someone who was completely new to the Bible, I felt that it at least made these stories more accessible. Which is why when, when we come to a text, like this one in Daniel 3, and I read that King Nebuchadnezzar made a giant gold statue and commanded all the people to fall down and worship it, the first thing that I think about is Rack Shack and Benny and the bunny song. So do we have that this morning? We do. Enjoy the bunny song. But this afternoon, everyone will meet the new bunny. And it's going to be a beautiful thing when everybody bows down and sings the bunny song. Um, I don't think I'm familiar with that particular tune. Could you just hum a few bars? You know, I was hoping you'd ask. The bunny song is how all my employees will show just how much they love the bunny. How nothing is more important than the bunny. How they do anything for the bunny. And it goes something like this. The bunny, the bunny, whoa, I love the bunny. I don't love my soup or my bread, just the bunny. The bunny, the bunny, yeah, I love the bunny. I gave everything that I had for the bunny. I don't want no health food when it's time to feed. A big bag of bunnies is all that I need. I don't want nobody to come out and play. I'll sit on my sofa, eat bunnies all day. I won't eat no beans, and I won't eat tofu. That stuff is for sissies, but bunnies are cool. Yeah! 
right? Um, you know, I often wondered, like, okay, they're not supposed to eat the bunny, but what are they are supposed to eat? Vegetables? You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, um, so King Nezer, he wants, he wants Rackshack and Benny to sing the bunny song, but the bunny song has things in it, as you've heard, let Rackshack and Benny know are no good. It's a song about sitting around eating junk food, and the boys know that that's just not right. So they sing another song, about standing up for what you believe in because God's the one who will back you up. An important principle for sure. And one that will be a good place to begin as we begin to open up this story that we, that as we find it in the Bible. I mean, this Rakshak of Benny is based on Daniel 3. So the thing is, when we do that, though, when we actually, you know, read the actual text, uh, we see that actually this is anything but a children's story. It's a story of pride and vanity and empire, and usurpation of God's created order. So let me tell you, let me ask you right now to take a moment and to consider the sort of power that you have. Everyone in this room has power to some degree. Maybe it's, it's power in your job or in your career position. Maybe you have power over a, over a family, over your family, or or in, your cl- in a classroom? Do you oversee other employees? If so, you may have some degree of power, and, and there is something that, um, uh, it, 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 if you have some sort of power, there is something for you in this story. You might prefer the word influence to power. Maybe that's a little bit more palatable than power. But the bottom line is, can you think of someone who is either directly or indirectly Um, affected by your choices. King Nebuchadnezzar found himself with an enormous amount of power. He had so much power that he could even command that a statue be made, uh, not of chocolate, but of gold, and then command that this statue be worshipped in elaborate ways. Did you notice how the the writer of the book of Daniel was, was laying it on thick with like the elaborate regal procession of the wise men and all the members of the government. In just the seven verses that, I, that we read, um, we heard twice about how Nebuchadnezzar had power over the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province. We get it, Nebuchadnezzar. You have power over the powerful. You influence the influencers. And then, if that wasn't enough, twice we hear about the pomp and circumstance that, that caused this worship to order. How, how do you know that it's time to worship the golden statue? Well, when you hear the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music. What's a trigon, by the way? It's like, I had to look that up. It's like a guitar, but it's like a, like a, a, a triangle-shaped like guitar with, uh, um, yeah, anyway, it's like, it's like something the guy from Cheap Trick would play. I don't know. Um, you know it's time to worship the statue. You're going to know it's time to worship the statue um, because this place is going to light up like the 4th of July. Now, where else in the Bible do we hear a story about a character creating something using the word image 
and then issue orders about what rule and reign and power is supposed to look like. I heard it. Genesis. Right at the beginning. God's created order. He creates humanity in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, and then gives them responsibilities to have appropriate power and dominion over his created order. And then he desires, then, that he dwell with humanity um, in shalom, in peace, in serenity, in concord, with everything, all things in their right place. But, but then what do we see in Daniel 3? We see Babylon usurping the role of the creator. We see a, a warped image of what order and power and dominion looks like. We see an image of a false god who is using fear in order to command his people to bend to his will. See, in this scenario, Babylon defines reality. Babylon defines success and failure. The empire defines right and wrong. In this scenario, the empire is God. Babylon is God. Because if I can get them to worship a statue, what else can I get them to do? This story is thousands of years old, but it is as fresh as the day's news. We read it over and over again with new settings and new characters. We even have major movie franchises on evil empires and what a small group of rebels can do if they put their mind to it. Nebuchadnezzar had brought in the elite of other nations in order to... Why, why did he bring the, the, these, these elite young men, these elite people into, the, into Babylon? Because he wanted to indoctrinate them into the Babylonian religion and into the Babylonian culture. He wanted to get into their head. He wanted to own them, body and soul. In the 1930s, Adolf Hitler organized, um, banned organizations like the Boy Scouts and commanded young boys in Germany all go through what was called the Hitler Youth Program in order to indoctrinate them into the Nazi party. Children were seduced with pomp. Children were seduced with pomp and circumstance that made it seem like what they were doing was heavy. That what they were doing had 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 heavy, even divinely ordained significance. And the next thing you know, 10 years later, you have a new generation of young men ready to swear allegiance to something that is very much not God. See, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just issuing a command about a silly statue. He was crafting a culture. And he was propping something up that was very much not God at the center of it. We heard about how he issued the proclamation and then folks from all people, nations, languages, they fell down and they worshipped the golden image. And this created a problem. It created a problem for those from Israel. You might remember another movie, the one with Charlton Heston, when the Israelites were rescued from slavery and then they were given ten laws to keep, ten commandments. And, and the first two of those commandments are one don't worship other gods. Don't have any other gods before Yahweh. And two, don't have carved images, especially not images that you worship. I'm your God. I'm your king, God was saying through the Ten Commandments. I'm your God. I'm your king. I give you your sense of right and wrong. I am the one that, 
That is, I am the only one who is worthy of your worship. You have your identity, God says, in me. So, so worshiping a giant golden statue would have, bro- would have broken both of those commandments, not to mention probably a whole lot of other ones. A golden statue, no matter how big it is, isn't worthy of your worship. It's a created thing. It's finite. Israel believed that their God, Yahweh, was the one true and living God, the one sovereign over all creation, the one who was the beginning and the end. Worshiping their God was a natural thing to Israel because he was worthy of that worship. Now, you might sit there and think, well, I'm not in any danger of worshiping a gold statue. I think I'll be okay. You might say, I'm not a perfect person, but I don't think I'm likely to fall down and worship a golden statue anytime soon. The problem is that, as John Calvin famously said, human beings are idol factories. Not I-D-L-E, although I'm sure we have lots of problems with laziness, um, but I-D-O-L factories. We are great. Human beings are great at finding unworthy things that aren't God to worship instead of God. Food, sex, money, relationships, kids, jobs, political parties, national identities, national identities and sports franchises, just to name a few. Now, none of that stuff is bad. In fact, all of that stuff on some level helps make the world go around. The question is, is God on the throne of it? Is God on the throne of your sexuality? Is God on the throne of your career? Is God on the throne of how you understand your place in the political process of our country? Or do you find yourself making decisions based on those things with your back turned to God, finding your identity in those things, making choices about those things and, and treating other people who are very much, or, or, are, or are on different, do different kinds of things um, with, with, with contempt, rather than rooting yourself and your identity in the God who is king over it all. See, that's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come into the story. So the other wise guys come into the presence of king, presence of the king, and they tell them, they tell him the king, they tell the king that, that these young Jewish guys, you know, these, these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they aren't worshiping the statue the way they're supposed to, king. Um, they're, they're not doing, they're not, they're not playing along, God, uh, uh, king. Uh, there, there, there's a problem here. And if, and if they don't have to do it, does that mean I don't have to do it too? Oh, 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 the king's got to shut this down. You know, before we go further, one of the things that I love about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, the, 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 one of the things that I think is really cool about this story is that each time Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are mentioned, they're mentioned together. When they speak in the story, they speak in unison. They are treated as a micro-community. And it reminds me of, of, of Jesus who, who said that you know, whenever two or more are gathered, that he would be in the midst of them. More on that in a few minutes. But I think it's an image of what the church is, right? That, that, that the idea of, have you ever felt that, that, that there was a compromise, that there was something you needed to be praying for, there was something, there was some problem that existed in your life, but, my gosh, I feel like I'm alone. 
The, the reason the church exists is so that we remind each other, you were never alone. Christianity is absolutely not a solo sport. It always supposed to, was always supposed to be done in community. And so I love that aspect of this story. So moving on. The, the wise men, the other wise men, approach the king and they make three accusations about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is verse 12. They say, there are certain Jews you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the golden statue as you've commanded. King, they aren't conforming like the rest of us are. So the king gets into a furious rage, and he brings the boys in to see him, and he says, is it true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, say it ain't so. That you, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, 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 guys, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image that I've made well and good, I mean, you know, you hear the music, right? You, you see the band playing. Don't you know that you're supposed to worship? You guys know that you, you heard the decree, right? You, you know that you're supposed to worship the statue when that happens. Now, if you fall down... And worship the statue now. No, no, no problem. We'll, we'll just move on. But if you don't worship the statue, if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast in a burning, fiery furnace. And here's the, maybe the grimmest verse of this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar says, and, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands. Here is a king that is intoxicated with power. And it's the boy's moment of truth, right? They're standing together, but, and they are called to account by none other than the king himself. And they stand together and they say, listen, listen to what they say. They, o King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, meaning like, even if God doesn't save us from this fire, be it known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image." You remember a few minutes ago when those other wise men told on the boys to Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that they had three accusations. They don't worship the statue, they don't serve your gods, and they pay no attention to you. But you just heard the words of the boys, and they made it clear that one of those accusations that the wise men made against them was very much not true. You heard it when they said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, king, oh, king, they are paying plenty of attention to the king. Just like Daniel found a way to serve the king in the previous two chapters. Years later, the early church was faced with a, with a scandal, a similar scandal, when it was uh, commanded to, to, to bow a knee to Caesar. And the response was very similar to what the boys said. They said, we're, gonna, we're not going to pray to Caesar or play along with idolatry in his name. But make no mistake, we, we will pray for the king. We will pray for him. We will treat the king 
with the respect that he deserves, we will serve him and be loyal to him so long as it doesn't interfere with our worship of the one true and living God. Uh, as long as it doesn't interfere with our worship of God, we're, we're on the king's side. This is like walking a, a thin balance beam, right? But it's so important that we walk it. At no point did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pose an open threat to Babylon. As followers of this one true God, we are indeed called to stand for our convictions. But at the same, in the same breath, we, we, we make it known that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those in power have been placed in those positions for a reason. And we're called to pray for them. Is there a political leader? Is there a, a ruler? Is there, is there someone that is in power you, you don't particularly care for? Well, your first responsibility as a follower of Jesus Christ is to pray for that individual. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, in order that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in, sight, in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have used that moment to spit in the king's face, but instead they treated him with respect, with a respect that he didn't deserve, even in the face of death, because they knew that ultimately God was the one true king. God didn't deserve their worship. Sorry, God, God did deserve their worship, and he had called the boys to be a blessing, even in the midst of exile. I mean, that's a powerful level of faith right there. King, if you need to kill us, kill us. No great rebellion, no death to tyrants. God may save us. He may not. Either way, he's still God, and you're not. Well, the king lost it. You'll see in verse 19 that he was filled with fury, and it actually says that the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He literally lost control. He orders the furnace to be seven high, to, set, to be set seven times hotter than it usually was. And then he orders his guards, his stormtroopers, to tie them up in order that they might be cast into the fiery furnace. The, the writer even makes a point to mention that the boys are still wearing their Babylonian garments, right? They were playing along. The king is about to murder loyal subjects. He doesn't even care that others get injured along the way. The furnace is so hot that it even kills the stormtroopers, as Mary mentioned before. It kills the stormtroopers, the guards that the king uses to throw the guys into the fire. The guards were dead, and now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bound together, fell into the fiery furnace. And the room waits to hear the screams. But they hear nothing. Verse 24 then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. What's going on? He declared to his counselors, he looked in. Did, didn't we cast three men into the fire? Oh, true, O king. Yeah, yeah, three guys. So, well, I see four men in there, unbound, and they're all walking around in the midst of the fire. 
They aren't. They're, they're, they're clearly not hurt. And this fourth man, this fourth guy that's in there with them, he seems to have the appearance of a, of a divine being, like a, like a son of God. Nebuchadnezzar was, isn't sure of what he just saw, but evidently he, he saw enough, and he, he now yells a pretty different tune. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. The guys come out, and everybody sees that not even their clothes had been singed. Verse 27 says, the fire had not had any power over their bodies. The the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. Nebuchadnezzar makes a bittersweet decree. He says in verse 28, this, this must have made him feel pretty good. In verse 28, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has set his angel, sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and who set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Oh, okay, that's a great witness. We have, we, well done, guys. That, that is certainly nice. And then the king goes on, therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruin, for there is no other God who is able to rescue you this way. Well, you kind of, you kind of like, like, you know, this is horrible, but it's like this kind of a humorous moment where the guys are like, oh, this is really nice. You know, the king is like affirming us. Wait, wait, what did you say? No, that, that's not what we meant. Um, that's not exactly what we had in mind. You know, it's interesting, though, that, you know, tomorrow is another day. This is not the end of the story. We turn the page and we see a whole new episode. But the boys, they're promoted. And the story continues and we go back to to Daniel as a figure in the story. So, question, who, who was the other dude in the fire? God. That's probably the best answer, Cindy. Other people might say, Jesus. Some people might say, oh, it was Jesus that was in the fire with them. And, and, and I would say, um, on one hand, yes. You know, on, on one hand, what we see is, is ultimately Jesus as the, literally the embodiment of God's holiness, uh, coming in and entering the messes with his people. Um, now, obviously, there would have been other situations um, where... where um, it wouldn't have happened the way that it happened in this particular instance. You know, other times, people who took a stand for God were not saved from the fiery furnace. They felt the flames and they died. But yes, I do think that that is a a big point of this story, especially for us as Christians, to say, you know, that, that Jesus was, that there was another in the fire, a song we're about to sing in a moment, and it was Jesus. That, he, that Jesus enters into our story and helps us, helps to protect us. Even, even in the midst of pain, even in the face of pain, Jesus ultimately is interested in, in offering us a protection because he is the one that is holy. And even if death is on the other side of that, ultimately we believe that Christ has our holy back, our, our back. So on one hand, yes, I do think that it was uh, Jesus. On another hand, still yes, but also I think we have a responsibility to 
uh, let the story work for us. When, when I was in seminary and taking Old Testament, um, one of the things I was constantly like slapped into, into line about was that when you're reading a story in the Old Testament as Christians, and of course it's rightly so, as Christians, one of the things that we want to do is immediately make anything in the Old Testament about Jesus. Now, that's fine. We believe that. That's not just fine. It's great. We believe that everything in the Old Testament is ultimately pointing towards Jesus. It's a unified story. Like the Bible Project says, it's a unified story that points us towards Jesus. But we, I also think we have a responsibility. Like, we don't read Daniel 3 and then turn the page and then we see we meet Jesus. Like, like no. The, the, like, it, it, it's like, you know, watching Star Wars and, you know, uh, it, it, you know, uh, you, you're watching Star Wars with your kids, um, and 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 somebody says, "Well, that Luke Skywalker guy seems to have kind of a weird relationship with this Darth Vader guy. Is he his dad?" Like, well, yeah, but but, but you're not there yet. W- let the story work for you. And so I think that's a responsibility that we have when we study the Old Testament text is to 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 read the story as it was given to us. And no, the, the, it says, doesn't say anywhere in there um, that, that, well, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah that was to come. It doesn't say that. Like what Cindy says, and one of the reasons why I loved what you said was God, is that, yeah, ultimately it's God who's going to be in the fire with us. And, and we have a responsibility to see how God tells his story so that at the moment, when Jesus Christ steps onto the stage of history and says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, we have, like, we have matured into that moment. So that's kind of what the rest of this series of Daniel is going to be for us as we go through the fall. We're going to be um, working our way there and trying to help this story develop. And we were going to see some incredible stuff throughout the book of Daniel, especially when we get to Daniel 7 and we hear about this individual that is called the Son of Man. And then we read, in, uh, you have that in your head the whole time as you're reading the, the book of, of Mark specifically, where how repeatedly Jesus refers to himself as the book of man. No, there's something about the Old Testament and the responsibility we have to, to, to read this text um, the way that it's given to us. We, we, we don't want to just rush and say, well, this is Jesus, and then, well, we might as well be reading the New Testament because all this is about Jesus. No, God is telling us something through these stories, and that um, is uh, important for us to, to think about. Um, so we're not, we're not ready to be introduced as far as the meta-narrative of Scripture is concerned. We're not ready to be introduced to the character of Jesus just yet. All that being said, we all, you know, are about spoiling the ending here, and ultimately, Jesus is Lord. But for that, let me pray. Father, when we are faced um, with power that is mixed with human sinfulness, it is so difficult for us to walk that balance beam and to figure out how might we respond in a faithful way. We might want to respond in anger. We might want to respond with holy indignation and say, no, I'm going to fight this evil the way that I want to. But the truth is that, Father, the way you fought evil the way you fought 
unholy power. The way you fought corruption was through sacrificial love, was through the gentleness and for, through the, the holiness that was the path to the cross. Father, we, we hear, we see from this grand story that you've shown us that ultimately our call is to live this life of cruciformity that you've called us into, conforming our lives to the image of the crucified Lord, being ones who play, who make the sacrificial play, ones who lay down our lives, not just for holy people, not just for holy causes, but we lay our, down our lives for others. We bear the burdens of others. And yes, when we are called to take a stand, we need to make that stand. I'm grateful that, that the, the words, stand up, stand up for what you believe in, believe in God, he's the one to back you up, he'll stand with you. I'm, I'm grateful that, that VeggieTales helped me figure out that and I memorized that as a, as a kid. I, I, I'm grateful for that because that's such an important truth. Help us to know where we take that stand. Help us to know where our convictions need to be rooted. And help us to know that even if we stand against the evils of empire and the evils of our day, sometimes that means that God, you will protect us physically. Other times it doesn't mean that. Maybe in in fact, most times it doesn't mean that. We will feel the fire. We will suffer. But help us to know that when we do that, when we stand for our convictions, we are standing with you. When we face pain, we are experiencing a bit of your pain. When we are faced with empire and we are faced with evil, Lord, help us to be the people that you've called us to be. Help us to anticipate new creation. Help us to lay down our lives the way that you laid down your life for us. And it's in the most holy name of this Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.